0: And for many of us this morning, as we look at these verses, I suspect they will be fairly familiar verses. We're in pretty familiar territory, familiar imagery, familiar ideas. We think salt and light, and we kind of think, well, I've got that wrapped up. I know what that's about. But I think they are both profoundly challenging and very encouraging verses. Because in them, Jesus says to us, in one sense what the previous 12 verses or so have been leading up to, what we've been learning about over the summer and where they come to in the end. He says this, he says, be confident that transformed inner lives affect the world around us. Say that again, be confident that transformed inner lives affect the world around us. And indeed, verse 16, they will change the world. You see, as people see the difference that Jesus makes to his people, then he says they will praise our Father in heaven, which I take it means the kingdom is growing. Which means there are more people praising him than there were. That is the result of the Beatitudes that we've been looking at over the summer. That is where it all concludes, little people like me and like you, on a Monday morning in the places that God has called us to, following a glorious king. And so sticking out, being different, and changing the world. And they should be exciting verses. That should be an amazing idea. Verses to thrill our hearts, no? Don't you long for people to look in and see the difference that Jesus makes to your life or to a church like this and end up praising God with us? Wouldn't that be an incredible outworking for this summer series? But aren't we just left kind of scratching our heads slightly? Does does verse 16 happen much in your world? Does it happen much in my world? You see, they are familiar images. We're in familiar territory. But I suspect when it comes down to it, we've not quite got to grips with what it means, really. So I'm going to pray for us now that God would help us see what these verses mean, but more than that, that these ideas of salt and light would so work their way into our lives, into this church, that we would rejoice in verse 16 type territory, where there are new people with us praising God because they see the difference that he makes. Let me pray for us. Father, guard us, please, from familiarity. Guard us from thinking we know what you're saying to us. Thinking we've got these ideas wrapped up but would you teach us afresh? And more than that, would you transform us, please? We long that our light would shine before others, that they may see our good deeds and glorify you for them with us. Father, we don't simply want to get a bit of grip of these verses. We want them to be a reality in our lives. And so we need your help. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Verse 13, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. So salt in Bible times was a precious commodity it was a very important thing used in everyday life for all kinds of things. The main source of salt, I'm told, was the Dead Sea. Uh, particularly there were some salt cliffs where you could go and collect it, or, or they also harvested it, they, they left sort of salty water, and then the sun got rid of the water, evaporated it off, and the salt was left behind. So it was an item they were very, very familiar with. And yet one of the problems with this picture of salt is that commentators get in all kinds of a pickle trying to work out exactly what Jesus means here. What does it mean that they are the salt of the earth? Why does he talk about salt? What use or uses of salt does he have in mind as he explains this for us? One of the commentaries I was reading um, lists 11 uses of salt as possibles. And another commentary had an extra one, so there's at least 12 we've got to pick from. What's going on? What does he mean? The other thing as well is, that as you sort of trace how these, when these commentaries are written, there are different ideas and fads that go in and out of fashion. At one point, they say, well, it's, it's certainly this and this, or possibly this. But then the next commentary says, no, 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 it's definitely this. And so we sort of go in and out of different ideas. I want to focus on, I think, three different um, options. I think they're good options. I think they're the strongest options. And you're, you're going to forgive me for a bit of um, preacher's Alliterative butchery, um, because they all begin with P, but maybe that will help us get our minds around them. What does it mean that they are the salt of the earth? Firstly, and this is the most butchered one, that is pizzazz. (laughs) That is, salt is distinctive. It brings flavour. It simply makes a dish more tasty and enjoyable. It's, It's St. Giles' time of the year you're an Oxford regular, think bright lights, sounds, smells, excitement of St Giles on what's usually a quiet and fairly boring street. The fair brings something to it, something exciting. It brings some pizzazz for a weekend each year. The reality of salt to make something a bit more distinctive and tasty. So you go to the fish and chip shop and you will cover it in salt, maybe a bit of vinegar. The huge difference that a bit of salt makes to your food. Or think of a a soup that you're making and you put salt in and it brings out the flavours, the different ingredients. And the reality is a small amount of salt actually goes a very long way as well. If if you're a parent, you might know that as you're having to scrape salt off from your child's meal because it, it came out in a rush. That would have been a huge encouragement for the first disciples If you think a small amount of salt goes a long way, there would be very few disciples at this point. And so maybe Jesus is saying, in a bland world, be different. Christians, disciples, be distinctive. I wonder particularly if he's got in mind as well how we use our words. The distinctiveness of our words. Do you remember Paul writes to the church in Colossae? In chapter 4 and verse 6, let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. It's kind of a salty wisdom, salty words. So can I be direct? Can I ask, how different and distinctive are you from those around you? It's so easy just to blend in. Maybe you're I'm heading back to school this week, maybe as a pupil or as a teacher. And you're aware of the way you can easily just blend into the culture around you, to the norms and the values of everyone else. We don't like sticking out much. We don't like it. Or maybe life is just busy and hard and tiring, and you're thinking, something else to add to my to-do list? I've got to, I've got to be different as well. I've got to have a bit of pizzazz in a bland world. It's easy just to have a basic life that's the same as everyone else, and we kind of go to church on Sundays. But Jesus has just told us what salty people look like. It's what we've been looking at over the summer. A salty person is someone who is blessed because they are poor in spirit. Or someone who mourns over sin, or someone who is meek in the way they treat others, or or peacemakers, or or the merciful. Saltiness is being like Christ. Again, maybe the question is, how are our words different from those around us? It's easy just to, to blend in and to complain and to gossip and to moan like everyone else. Everyone else is joining in, but how do we draw a line and be different? Or maybe better still, how do we speak words of grace and kindness and humility and peacemaking and encouragement? How might those words change your workplace, change the team that you're a part of?
1: Maybe you are dreading this next week.
0: I'm sure a number of us in this room will be. Back to school routines, back to work, back to just kind of normal life again. And maybe we need to ask the question, what are the places, what are the situations, the environments, the friendships, the conversations that I'm in most weeks where I can be different, where I can add some pizzazz and be salty?
1: Maybe work through your diary.
0: Maybe prayerfully work through your diary. Look at the meetings, look at the coffees, look at the people you're going to rub shoulders with and plan ahead. So first one then, pizzazz. Secondly, salt. Preservative. So imagine the fishermen we've already encountered in Matthew. You've got Simon Peter and Andrew, you've got James and John, and they've been out fishing all night and it's the morning and they have caught this huge fish huge haul. More fish than they know what to do with. And they drag them all in and they put them in the free. No, there's no freezer. They can't put them in the fridge or the freezer. There is nothing like that. There's just hot sun. And what happens to fish when it gets hot in the sun? Stinks. It rots. And so I'm told salt was used as a preservative applied to the fish it makes it last longer. And so maybe Jesus is, is saying, friends, this, this world is broken and rotten and sinful and selfish. It's the kind of world where people say, me first. It's the kind of world where we look after number one. And so maybe as disciples, we're here to be a preservative, to, to stop something of the rot. Again, how well? Maybe through poverty of spirit, or mourning over sin, or meekness, or hungering and thirsting for righteousness, or being a peacemaker. But in a broken and rotten world, maybe as Christians we're we're meant to preserve it in some way. Again, go through your diary this week, think through what's coming up, and work out where perhaps you need to to make a stand on things. Maybe it is the dishonesty that just goes unquestioned. It's just normal part of life in your workplace. Maybe it's the deceit. The small things in people's eyes. But big things in the Lord's eyes. Are there places you need to be brave? To be distinctive. To be a preservative element. Maybe that's the kind of thing Jesus is getting at. Or thirdly, the prophetic witness. Now, what is that? Okay, so earlier in the Bible, salt is an absolutely key element to the life of God's people. It's in a a number of the sacrifices, and there you see salt represents commitment to God, and indeed the commitment of God to his people as well. Let me give you a couple of examples. Leviticus 2 verse 13 says, And every offering of your grain offering you shall season with salt, you shall not allow the salt of the covenant of your God to be lacking from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. Or maybe Numbers 18, a bit later, an, an everlasting covenant of salt before the Lord for both you and your offspring. And so, in adding salt to your sacrifice, it was a way of saying, I bind myself to this agreement. It was a sign of covenant faithfulness, of commitment. In some cultures today, that kind of thing still happens. Salt is used as salt is used as a way of symbolically ratifying a decision. It's rather like shaking hands on something. Which means, well, maybe salt here is Jesus saying to the disciples, Do you remember how before me the people of God were to be a prophetic witness to the world, to be different in the world? to show the world something of what I am like. Well, so Jesus is here saying to his people, you are the new Israel. You are to be a prophetic witness. You are to represent God to the world. And salt ratifies that as it did before Christ. So maybe some say there's something kind of covenantal going on here. The prophetic witness of the people of God that puts them in continuity with the people of God before Jesus. They're showing their commitment to him. They're showing the Lord's commitment to his people as they stand out for him. They are to be a people like their king. Which all sounds rather hopeful. Verse 13, you are the salt of the earth. But... But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's, it's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Do you see, if salt loses its saltiness, or I think the verb more literally means to become foolish. If salt becomes foolish, then what is the point of it now? If we're not distinctive or different or preserving or, or a witness to the Lord, what's the point of us? if it just becomes about a culture or a habit or something we've always done, and we're no different from anyone else, if we just blend in,
1: is there really much point in us being here? Jesus says, take careful heed of the warning.
0: What might that look like? Well, I wonder as we turn the pages of Scripture, as we turn the pages of the New Testament, we see something of that happening. The Gospel unfolds, and we see Jesus, the truly salty one, if you like. But we see encounters that he has with sort of so-called committed believers who, who thought they were following God, but they were in cahoots with the Roman governing authorities. They had been assimilated by the their prevailing culture. They weren't any different. They had compromised. They were salt that had lost its saltiness. And unsalty salt is useless, pointless, purposeless, disposable. It's just fit for adding with water and pouring down the sink or putting it in your green bin. It's a contradiction in terms. So again, maybe a bit of homework this week. As term starts, maybe as home groups kind of kick off again and start to gather some momentum or you grab coffee with someone. I've got three questions to, to sort of chew over, if you like. On the screen there. What does it mean for you to be salty? That will likely be a very different thing for each of us in the different contexts that we find ourselves in the different people that we rub shoulders with, the different conversations we will have each week? What does it mean for you to be salty? And then, are you salty? And the answer is always going to be kind of yes and no. But let's be honest about that. But then here's the one that made me think, what does it mean for you to stop being salty? How might that happen? How might you lose some of that distinctiveness? Where's the temptation to be quiet? Where's the temptation to blend in? Perhaps discuss those with a friend who who knows you and loves you. Maybe pray about them together. Maybe this term even. Chat with each other every couple of weeks. How's it going? You are the salt of the earth. And then the picture changes. Verse 14 to 16. You are the light of the world now if you knew matthew and you've been reading through matthew you would know that this light imagery this light and darkness picture has already come it's already appeared for us do you remember um, back in chapter 4 and verse 15 there you get it on page 968 the page before the one we're on if you're in the burgundy bibles do you remember matthew quoting from the prophet isaiah he says this he says land of zebulun and the land of naphtali the way of the sea beyond the jordan Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. So what is the light that Jesus speaks of here? What does light mean as we work our way through Matthew? Well, light here, at least, is this new hope that comes with the promised king. It's as if into the darkness, the brokenness of the world, in comes this beautiful, brilliant, bright king who's coming to put the world back together again. He's going to come and bring salvation. He's going to heal the sick. He's going to teach and to speak with authority. He's going to draw people back to the Lord. It's the light that says, come into the kingdom of heaven. Come into the world as it was meant to be.
1: And here is the king.
0: It's striking because as you go through the prophet Isaiah, actually what happens is here at the beginning, Isaiah 9, the Matthew quotes in Matthew 4, this seems to be talking about a specific individual. Here is God himself from the line of David who's going to come and bring light into the darkness. But you know, as Matthew develops... As the pages turn, as the story unfolds, something very strange happens, because it's not just an individual who's going to be a light for the Gentiles. But it's going to be the covenant people. It's going to be the people of the king who will be a light for the Gentiles. They are the people who will point folk back to the Lord and to salvation in him. And so Jesus gives us two pictures of this light that he talks of. Two examples. A city on a hillside and a lamp in a house. A city on a hillside. Again, again, I wonder if there's a context that Jesus is speaking into. There are ideas we're meant to bring forward from the Old Testament as we think through what it means to be a city on a hill. Where do you find a city on a hill before Christ or even after Christ? You find it at Jerusalem, God's city, God's city, to represent him, to be the place of his ruling, the place of his king. And yet what has his city become like? What has Jerusalem become like? Again, let me read to you from Isaiah in chapter 2. He says, in the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted over the hills and the nations will stream to it. Many people will come and say, come, let's go to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his way so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. That's what it's meant to be like. But in the transition from verse 5 to verse 6 in Isaiah 2 you lord have abandoned your people the descendants of jacob they are full of superstitions from the east they practice divinations like the philistines and embrace pagan customs you see they were meant to be a light it was meant to be beautiful but they've just blended in they've become like all the other nations they're just being the same as their neighbors And so Jesus says, you're to be a city on a hillside. We lose the force, don't we? We lose this idea, this this image, because we live in a relatively industrialised place. There are streetlights, car lights, traffic lights, house lights. But just imagine with me, you've gone somewhere desolate for a camping trip. You're in the distant wilds in the back of beyond. You're under a canvas and you're sheltering at the foot of a hill. You're away from people, you're away from the urban, you're away from man-made lights, and suddenly the moon goes behind a thick, dark cloud. And it is dark. It is, barely see the hand in front of your face, dark. But then imagine there is a city on the hillside where you are. And the lights from the houses perhaps reflect off the clouds, and suddenly the darkness becomes bearable. You see, we probably miss how debilitating darkness is because light is so readily available for us. Maybe it's only in something like a power cut when these truths, these images, begin to make more sense. Perhaps when we begin to see how dark the natural world really is. But they are to be a city on a hillside, And secondly, there to be a lamp in a house. Again, we've got electric lights, we've got um, replacement bulbs, we have uh, torches on our phones, should you so require them. We don't particularly understand what it means to be in the dark. The lamp Jesus is describing here will have been a shallow bowl of oil with a small wick, and you would light it and the oil would burn, and everyone could see again. There would be light in the house. Not a lot of light, perhaps, by modern standards, but by ancient standards. Suddenly the evening becomes available to you. The sun goes down. And suddenly you can carry on with life to some extent. You can see what you're doing. You can use your time well. Imagine a family, they're excited. They've got their first lamp or a replacement lamp. New bowl, new oil, new wick. And they light it, and mum is there. And she puts it under a bucket. What are you doing? You've missed the point. What are you doing? That makes no sense. It's foolish. It's unheard of. Aside from the scientific fact, you pedants that would say it runs out of oxygen, that's not Jesus' point, science teachers. But it is there to provide light. Don't cover it up. That would be a waste. Use the light, don't hide the light. The whole point of the lamp is to bring light, just as the whole point of salt is to be salty. question I have, which you can come and Um, teach me afterwards about, is why Jesus uses these two examples. Why not just a lamp? Why not just a city? Why both? Is he just reinforcing it? Is he just sort of hitting the point home? Repetition from the preacher. A bit of me wonders whether he's making a point that Light can be both individual and it can be corporate. You see, the lamp is singular. There'll be one flame, maybe. It's, it's me, it's you in our weeks, in our lives, wherever the Lord has placed us, being a light, pointing people to Christ. But the city is a collection of lights. It's together. It's all of us. It's shining and being magnified and spurring each other on. Maybe it's more about a community, that the effect that we have as, as disciples together in the situations that we find ourselves in, the places the Lord has called us to. Maybe us as a church, our corporate witness in East Oxford. Maybe it makes us ask the question, well, who can I shine with through the week? Are there Christians in my workplace or on my street or on my team where I need to, to work harder at engaging with them? Maybe to pray with them. Maybe to encourage them. Maybe so we might be a city on a hill together in a dark place. Maybe. And the other point, of course, that we can't ignore is that we need to be among people. That's something of his point as he talks about not being a lamp under a bucket, isn't it? That's something of a danger, I think, as we think about these beatitudes. They are all about internals, they are about your character. They are, in a sense, about what you are like behind closed doors, to some extent. Man looks at outward appearance. God looks at the heart. And so it's not a very big step for us then to say, well, well, do you know, everything can become quite private then. And we can end up just looking inwards and sort of gazing at our navels and retreating from the reality of life and focusing on our inner self and not getting distracted by normal life. And the story of church history will follow that as well. And that can be our story. Jesus says you need to be seen by others. And it's very difficult to be seen by others if we are locked away from others. It's funny, I look out and I recognise that Oxford is one of those weird places where there are lots and lots of Christian organisations and charities based here. And so lots of you... Work with Christians the whole time, very much. Let me encourage you to to go find some darkness. Don't get stuck in the holy huddle together, but, but go and be different somewhere. Whatever that might be for you. Join a club. Hook up with some old friends again. Whatever it might be. Don't get stuck in the holy huddle where we end up basically putting our lamp under a bucket. Rather, let's put it on a stand so that people will see. Some people think that Jesus is specifically contrasting his disciples here with a particular sect from Judaism at the time who who called themselves the sons of light. But the reality was that they kind of closed themselves away from anyone else. They didn't interact. They shut the door they shut the window and they withdrew. That may or may not be true. But it's a temptation for us, isn't it? It's easier. We talked last time about the, the reality of persecution, it being like sandpaper. The values of God's kingdom and the values of this world's kingdom scraping against each other, and it's painful. And we you ever tried putting sandpaper on the back of your hands? We kind of wouldn't do that. It's, It hurts. Maybe we'd rather not be different. And so we retreat. But the call is for exposure. The world is dark. But we are to be light. And this light, what does he mean by this light? Well, verse 16 is explicit. You see, in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So in one sense, it is very simple. Light is good deeds. Again, those good deeds, I take it the fruit of a verse 1 to 12 type life. The outworking of poverty of spirit and mourning and meekness and hunger and thirsting for righteousness and peacemaking and When those things characterize you, they will work their way through. Changed hearts lead to changed actions, they lead to good deeds. So, in one sense, it's simple, but in another, I wonder if it's not quite so simple. Because it's interesting, the end goal that Jesus outlines in verse 16 is quite specific. We were there last time, we had a sneaky peek, if you remember. The doing good, the good deeds result in people glorifying our Father in heaven. I don't think that's just people saying, aren't Christians great? Aren't they kind? Well done, Lord. I think they are worshipping him. They are glorifying him because they have come to worship with us. And not just actually glorifying God, they're glorifying your Father in heaven, it says. So, so why is it not so simple? Because I'm not sure whether good deeds on their own will bring about that kind of reaction. I wonder if it's implied that words will accompany them, even if it's expected that words will accompany the good deeds. Maybe even that's where the salty thing comes from in verse 13. It's the salty, different, distinctive, gospel-gracious wisdom that interprets what's going on in the light of verse 14 and 15. It's quite easy to do good deeds. It's quite easy to be nice. It's quite hard to speak about our faith, to speak about Christ, isn't it? I heard recently a brilliant story of um, of an African missionary arriving for the first time at Heathrow, coming to our country to speak to people of Christ. It was his first time ever flying. It was his first time at Heathrow. And He heads through customs and they ask him, have you got anything to declare? (laughs) And he's a bit confused. To which he replies, of course I have something to declare. I have a message to declare that Jesus is Lord. And I love that because where we have grown tired of that message, or we have grown fearful of proclaiming that message, it's a joy to hear of people who haven't. Who just get on with it. So if good deeds result in people praising our Father in heaven, then I take it good deeds need to come with words as well. And that's expected. I've used this um, story before at Magdlam Road, and it's a powerful and moving story. It's the kind of story that gives me goosebumps. Um, I'm going to make no apologies for using it again, because I think it really helps us see something of what this might look like. It's a a, um, story that the American pastor um, Tim Keller tells of a a lady who appears in his church in New York one day. And he he asks her, he goes and chats to her afterwards and said, hey, so what's your connection with um, the church here? How did you find your way here? And she said this. She says, well, it started a few weeks ago. I made a big mistake at work. I was new. And it really was a very big mistake at work. I should have been fired. But I was at the meeting with my boss who was well-respected in a room together, and I expected him to heap all the blame on me. But instead, he absorbed the blame, and he took responsibility for my mistakes. And everyone believed him, and it all went away. All my stress had gone. And when I asked him why he did it, he said, don't worry about it. Do you know, I've worked here so long. I've got the collateral built up. I can absorb this one, just accept it as as a gift. It's fine, it's fine. And this really bugged me, she says. I have worked for tens of bosses, but I have, not seen them accept, um, I have seen them accept the credit for loads of my work. But I have never heard of a boss who took my blame. So she goes back to him. And she starts pushing him again and again and again and says, what makes you so special? Why would you do that for me? And he eventually let it slip that he was a Christian. And that being a Christian made the difference because he wasn't working for the approval of the people around him. And her first question was, where do you go to church? Where can I go to a church that will tell me things like that?
1: And so here I am. It's striking, isn't
0: it? He he simply treated her differently. Maybe in a culture of blame, he, he was salty, he was light, and eventually he told her why. Wouldn't you just love to be a part of a church made up of people like that? A people like our king, a people of salt and light in the, the thick of the darkness of a broken world. Transport that example to your workplace, or to your environment, or to your week. A people who are, who are salty, the, the pizzazz, the preservative, the prophetic witness as our lives show something of what God is like. A people of light in the darkness pointing folk around us to the goodness of our King, whether on our own or
1: in groups together. And the result being
0: that they may see our good deeds and glorify our Father in heaven. Let's pray. Father, these these three verses may be very familiar to many of us. But when it comes to it
1: very hard...
0: And so we pray that you would guard us from from simply absorbing the values of the culture around us. We pray that we may be salty, that we may add flavour, that we may be a preservative, that we may be a witness to you and what you're like in our daily lives. We pray that we may be light in the darkness.
1: And we recognize
0: that we can't do that on our own, and say, so "Would you transform us from within Would we be a people who are increasingly characterized by the beatitudes we've been looking through this, this summer?
1: And would those things
0: bring forth good deeds? And would you give us open lives so that people will see them and open mouths so that we can explain why and explain who you are. God is pleased from being a church of folk who are just insular, who are looking in the whole time. But might we be a people who, who have so tasted your goodness and your grace that we long to share it with those around us.
1: Father, we long that there would be people who,
0: who see the difference that you make and so come to glorify you with us. In your son's precious
1: name we pray. Amen.